In everyday life, because of this problem creep that we just talked about phenomenon, we can totally lose sight of the fact how freaking good we have it. Like, life today is amazing. Amazing in every single way. But we're not good at seeing that. And so I think in order to see that, we need to put ourselves in positions where we are forced to see it. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshow Jr. And today I am bringing you Michael Easter. When I was a Division I All-American athlete, I was hyper-focused and I was able to take consistent action that allowed me to be one of the best in the country at what I did. Well, for years after I was done competing, I just struggled to stay focused on my goals day in and day out. I was easily distracted, so I wasn't able to stay consistent, the kind of consistency that you need to have to achieve goals that are meaningful to you. It was discouraging for me. I felt like I was just slipping kind of into mediocrity. Then after interviewing some of the highest performers in the world, Olympians, CEOs, billionaires, best-selling authors, I discovered how they do it. I discovered 18 powerful and sometimes weird tactics that they use to stay focused at work, focused on the right things while also living a balanced life. And if you start using probably just three of these today, you're going to get more done in the next eight hours. I promise. This is not tomorrow, not next week. These will work today. I guarantee it. It's like magic, but they're real world solutions to it. People like you and me want the ability to stay focused, avoid distraction and be consistent. I use at least four of them every day and have used all of them at some point. Now I'm able to stay focused while I'm at work and get probably 50 to a hundred percent more done each day. I'm more present when I'm home with my wife and four kids. And the result is I have a stronger relationship with my family and I'm still able to achieve incredible goals like being selected to give a TEDx talk at one of the biggest TED events in the world, like launching a podcast and talking to A-list guests and running a half marathon, all of this while having a full-time job that includes frequent travel, working nights and weekends and all that good stuff. So you're going to find solutions on this list that are going to surprise you. Grab your copy of the 18 Tactics to Staying Focused at Work. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash focus. That's jimharshawjr.com slash focus. If you're watching this on YouTube or if you're seeing this on Instagram, you know that I am not in my normal surroundings. I'm actually in my uh, my Western branch office in Montana, Whitefish, Montana, getting to spend some quality time out here with family and go on some amazing adventures. We're going on a three-day backpacking trip up in the mountains and we got to take bear spray, massive big bottles of bear spray because there are grizzlies there and uh, just... So excited for that. And that actually perfectly aligns with this episode because this episode is all about the book called The Comfort Crisis. I mean, the author, Michael Easter, who I'm going to bring on here in just a second, he's a writer and editor for Men's Health and Outside Magazines. He's a professor at UNLV. This guy travels the globe and he embeds himself with some of the most brilliant people, but often overlooked scientists and thinkers and people living at the extremes. And he shares his findings through his books and articles and other media. I mean, his investigations have taken him to ancient monasteries in Bhutan, uh, to U.S. Special Forces training grounds, to high-tech genetic laboratories in Iceland, Fortune 500 boardrooms, and some of the world's most remote wilderness areas. And he shares his findings. I mean, his work has appeared in over 60 countries. He's been endorsed by some of the biggest 
people out there you'd want to be endorsed by, like past directors of the CIA and Navy SEALs and gold medal winning Olympians and, and you know, leading physicians and Pulitzer Prize winning authors and Buddhists and environmental leaders, et cetera. This book, The Comfort Crisis, really brings to light what so many of my podcast guests like Joe DeSena, um, who I interviewed several years ago, actually, on the podcast. He's the president of Spartan Races. Dave Redding, the founder of F3. This conversation today really brings to the surface and, and really into the light of day everything behind what these guys talk about into, you know, maybe we don't want things to be so hard, right? And like Dave Redding said, maybe deep in the hearts of men, we don't want everything to be so easy. Joe DeSena said in the podcast when I interviewed him, he said, if we architect a little bit of discomfort into our lives, we can be happy just eating a cracker in the rain, right? And it's like, you know, we always want to be happier and we're constantly raising the bar. Well, this episode really goes to the science of this, to the evolutionary story behind all of this and how you can implement the, his learnings and his findings into your life. This is so practical, so real, strikes to the core of everything that we talk about on the Success Through Failure podcast. All right, let's jump into it. My interview with Michael Easter. What is the comfort crisis? So uh, this is my new book. It is about how as the world has gotten a lot more comfortable in a lot of ways, we've removed a lot of effort, challenge from our life. We've lost a lot of our health and even happiness. So if you look at a lot of the research, sort of these very comfortable, effortless environments that we now live in, they're linked to everything from chronic disease to our high rates of depression and anxiety and just feeling a lack of meaning. And, you know, in the book, I argue that there are fundamental discomforts that we need to weave back into our lives in order to sort of find ourselves and be healthier and be happier. But we're always trying to find things that make our lives easier, right? I mean, that's like the whole trajectory of mankind is to, you know, get a bigger cave, get a more comfortable cave, you know, find more food, find more resources. And, and to the point now where we're like, okay, gosh, we can talk to somebody around on the other side of the planet from our phone and you know, a screen in our hand, like everything is so easy now, but we still find ways to make it hard. And I actually do want to talk about that as well. But like, don't we want things to be easier? Why is that a problem? So it makes a ton of sense that we would want to make things easier. Think about the environments that we evolved in for two and a half million years. To live was to be uncomfortable, right? Every single thing we did took effort. If you want water, you're going to have to go find it. If you want food, you're going to have to run it down or hike out and pick it from the ground. We face temperature swings all the time. If we could stay out of the elements, that gave us a survival advantage. If we could overeat, that would give us a survival advantage because food was hard to come by. So we developed this drive to always be comfortable. That served us. We default to that which is going to be easiest and most comfortable. But now, especially in the last hundred years, our world has tipped to one of comfort generally. We're just surrounded in comfort in a variety of ways. So think of your average day of temperature control. You sit behind a screen all day. You're no longer working with your body. We have really easy access to food and our food is very calorie dense too, right? It's all processed and we don't have to like put in any effort into our days. And so this drive we have to be comfortable, to do the easiest thing that served us for two and a half million years, all of a sudden it doesn't serve us as much anymore. Why not? I mean, it feels good, right? I can, I'm sitting here and you know, there's a refrigerator right over there. I can go there and eat this calorie dense food. It's like, it's easy for me, right? Why does that not serve us? I mean, and, and 
should we be architecting discomfort back into our lives? And, and if so, why? Yeah, I think we should. So, I mean, look at the biggest problems that society is facing right now. More than 70% of people are overweight or obese. Heart disease was basically non-existent until about a hundred years ago. And now it is the number one killer of people around the world. These two things are all brand new in the grand scheme of time. And they are mainly due to the fact that we don't have to move anymore. You know, we didn't exercise in the past because to live was to put physical effort into your day. So our ancestors moved around more like 14 times, were 14 times more physically active than us. We also didn't have this access to this food system we have now where we always have food around and it's food that's ultra processed and calorie dense. So you pair like this drive we have to overeat food, to eat calorie dense food and to not move because in our past, it's like, if we were, could be as lazy as possible, that was a good thing because it saved energy, put us in this new environment. And it's the driver of a lot of our problems. And this goes, I mean, I go on for days about this stuff. Think of how high anxiety and depression are right now. Well, a lot of this is tied into the fact that as we evolved, boredom was this evolutionary cue that was uncomfortable that would tell us to go do something more productive with our time. But now we've engineered all these different screens in different forms into our life. We're no longer bored. So anytime we feel like this twinge of boredom, we just pull out our phone and we go on Instagram and like all this attention we're putting into screens is really tied to these astronomical rates of anxiety and depression that we have. We're no longer challenged. We've totally removed challenge from our lives. You know, in our past, we would have to do hard things all the time, whether that was from hunting, whether that was from, you know, moving our family uh, from summer to wintering grounds, facing tigers in the bushes, whatever it might be. And these tasks we had, failure had some serious consequences. Well, nowadays we don't take on big challenges and the challenges we do often, we choose things that we know we can do because we still feel fear failure, right? So we don't really get pushed out to our edges where we learn something about ourselves anymore. You know, we're not pickled into these moments where we're like, oh man, I'm way more capable than I thought I was. And on and on and on. Yeah, I mean, the whole topic of failure, I mean, my goodness, like if you if we failed before, it could mean, you know, we get eaten, right? We could mean we get killed. It could mean we lose a family member, we get maimed, which, I mean, you, you know, you get maimed, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. That's like, you know, that could be your life. That could be your family's lives. All right. So this fear of failure, you know, like you referenced in the book, actually, at one point you said, you know, some of our biggest fears are like messing up on a PowerPoint presentation. And like, you know, the worst we get is like a, a stern look from our boss, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but failure is so painful and we avoid it now. Right. Yeah. Because it goes back to, you know, a lot of the book, what I talk about, is just that these drives and impulses we had that served us for all of time, they don't serve us anymore in our sort of safer, more comfortable world. So, you know, back to failure. In our past, failure could have meant death. It often did, right? It's like if you fail at finding food, well, you could starve to death. If you don't make it back to your cave or yurt or whatever it was, because there's this really crazy storm, you could die from that. So, or even if you take a risk, like if you take a risk and say, hey, I'm going to go be risky and do this entrepreneurial type venture, whatever that might have been for a caveman. Yeah. That could mean death. Like for us, it could just mean like, ah, I guess we need to like go get a new job or something. Yeah, exactly. So we developed this oversized fear of failure, right? Because it used to have real repercussions. Well, now if it's back to your point about something entrepreneurial in today's 
age, it's like, okay, you fail. What happens? Worst comes to worst, you have unemployment. We have safety nets for like everything in life now. So we're really dissuaded from taking risks, but it's more important now to take a risk than ever because, you know, failure, the repercussions of failure are not as big as they used to be. But we always find ways to create problems. Like you call it in the book, problem creep and comfort creep. Like, so we've solved all these problems. I mean, really, if you went back just a hundred years and talked to a human 100 years ago, not that long ago, really, evolutionarily speaking. And we said, man, check out what we've got, right? We've got yeah. cars and running water and everyone has running water and we have this and we, you can go to the grocery store. And, like, and they had some of those things then. But like now, I mean, gosh, if you just go back 200 years or three or 500 years, like all of our problems are solved. We would think, oh my gosh, you have zero problems, like none. Mm -hmm. But we still create them, right? Yes, exactly. So there's this concept I talk about in the book and it's a dorky, nerdy science name is prevalence-induced concept change. And you can really think about it as problem creep. And it was discovered by these two psychologists at Harvard. They were going to a conference. So they're in line for TSA and being psychologists, they're sort of noticing how the TSA, they just like find all this stuff that's not really a problem, right? It's like, oh, beep, beep, beep. And it's like, you know, oh, we had a water bottle in our bag or like, you know, they pull out a banana because they thought it was like a gun or something like that. Right. But they wonder, they go, if all of a sudden, like people just totally obeyed the rules and everything went through the scanner, would they just let everything go by or would they still kind of search for more problems? And they thought that that's what would happen. So they ended up doing these studies on this idea. And in one of them, they showed people 800 different faces. And the people's task was very simple. Tell me if the face you're looking at is threatening or non-threatening. The ratio was about 50-50 at first. And people go threatening, non-threatening, non-threatening, threatening. But unbeknownst to the participants, at about face 200, they started showing fewer and fewer threatening faces. So this should be like totally black and white, right? It's like a face is either like threatens you, it makes you feel something internally where you don't feel quite right, or it doesn't. But what they found is that they maintain the exact same ratio of threatening to non-threatening faces. So what happens, the greater takeaway is this, as humans face fewer and fewer problems, we don't actually internally experience fewer problems. We go out searching for problems. We lower the threshold for what we consider a problem. So something that used to be totally acceptable, or in the case of the study, didn't threaten us, all of a sudden it flips and now it becomes a problem. So you apply this to the grand scheme of time and space, you think about over 2.5 million years, how great we have it today in that grand scheme. We don't look back and think, man, hot running water, ambulances, cars, airplanes, like all the stuff we go, we search for these stupid little problems that we focus on today. So this is like the science of first world problems, right? We're like, Oh man, my mailman, he was late with the mail today. This is totally unacceptable. Just stupid little things like that, right? So it basically makes us less and less satisfied with things that used to be totally satisfactory to us. So this essentially can sort of make us m more miserable than we should be over time. So how do we fix it? I mean, how do we, because we're going to keep advancing technology, keep finding... I have no idea how, but more comforts, right? I can't even think of, you know, in this context of this conversation, like we really have no discomforts. Like we're going to keep finding problems 
And it's, I think we can see this not only evolutionarily, but like in our own lives, right? We want the next job, the next house, the more money, the more this, the more that, and the more, the more, the more we get there. And we know, I mean, the statistics all bear it out that we don't get happier. Like once you can essentially pay your bills and feed yourself and, and have some security, like, you know, money and more stuff doesn't make you happier. Like the bar for happiness continues to get pushed back, not only evolutionary, but all in, in our own lives. Like, how do we fix this? Because we're really what we're all trying to do is be happy. Yeah. I, and I think we see this, practically speaking, play out in the world where like you see millionaires who are just freaking miserable. But then there's also examples of, you know, like Buddhist monks who literally own nothing. They own nothing. And they're some of the happiest people in the world. And so I mean, to answer that question, I will sort of tell you a story about my own experience. So for the book, I spend more than a month up in the Arctic. And to get up to the Arctic, basically I have to take six planes, okay? So it's like a big 737, 747, whatever it is from Vegas to Seattle, Seattle to Anchorage, Anchorage to this little town called Kotzebue. And then it's like a four person plane out into the middle of the tundra that plane's too big for the final destination. So then I'm in a two person plane and this thing is like a pack of gum with wings. Right. And that takes me to just drops me off in the middle of the tundra. But the thing about flying is that I absolutely hate it. I hate everything about being on a 737 or 747. Right. It's like, who likes flying? The seats are too small. Your knees are shoved up into your throat. The coffee sucks. Right. The screen in front of you, the movies it plays, they suck. They're never good, are they? The plane's always too hot. If you have to go to the bathroom, you have to like get up and maybe step over someone. And then you go and it's like the bathroom's just like so cramped. Just everything about flying is terrible. Well, once I spent 30 days, more than that, <laughs> up in the Arctic, every single thing I did took effort. If I wanted to go to the bathroom, I would have to walk hundred yards out, 200 yards out. I'd also have to take a rifle because there were grizzly bears around and I would have to squat, right? If I wanted hot water, I would have to walk like a mile down to the stream, carry it all the way back up. And then I have to pull out this crappy backpacking stove and heat it up. Food wise, I was starving the entire time because we didn't take in enough food to really fuel us. I was freezing cold the entire time, negative 20 some days. So when I get back, and I get back on that 747 to Vegas, what do you think my experience on that plane was? It was like, oh my God, this is like heaven. Like I hadn't sat in a chair for more than a month. And this chair is not just a chair, it's a cushion chair. I hadn't had access to any screen at all up there. I was bored out of my mind. And now all of a sudden I've got this screen that has a hundred movies. When I want, need to go to the bathroom, I just, oh, I just walk. I don't have to bring a firearm. When I wash my hands after, there's hot running water coming out of the faucet, right? When that water hit my hands, it's like I had the most, the hugest grin on my face. And this is all occurring at 30,000 feet in the air, mind you, right? So, you know, I told you that to tell you this. It's like in everyday life, because of this problem creep that we just talked about phenomenon, we can totally lose sight of the fact how freaking good we have it. Like life today is amazing, amazing in every single way but we're not good at seeing that. And so I think in order to see that, we need to put ourselves in positions where we are forced to see it because you know it's all good to talk about this in theory. And I think some people can really, they go, okay, in theory, I can see that, I can practice that. But I think it takes a lot more if you put yourself in a position where you were forced 
to see it and to experience it. So I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to go into some far off, terribly uncomfortable place for a month, but I am suggesting there's probably ways that you could shed a little light on this problem creep phenomenon in your own life. For example, what if you were to volunteer at a homeless shelter? Well, that'd make you realize that you have it pretty good, right? If you're a volunteer to help kids who are orphans, I don't know, right? There's a lot of different ways that you can put yourself in a position where you are forced to realize, hey, things aren't that bad. Things aren't that bad. Even though I can complain about, you know, the traffic on my way to my, you know, workout class and eh, that was bad, but you know, I got, there's bigger problems out there in the world. That takes a lot of intentionality. That takes a lot of stepping back out of the busyness and craziness of the real world to recognize that. Shoot, I'm here, as I mentioned, Michael, at my sister-in-law's house in Montana, and I just noticed on her wall this morning, there's a, a quote that's hanging. It says, the secret to having it all is knowing that you already do. And we have to realize that. We have to pull back and realize that. And you talk about architecture, you know, or, or you know, doing these experiences like you did up in the in the Arctic, you know, going through severe pain and discomfort over the extended period of time, maybe not severe, but like, you know, certainly some pretty serious stuff that you did up there in discomfort in terms of food and hunger and cold and everything else. And, and just the exertion and, and, and fear of, you know, having to take a firearm with you. There's so much value in that. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. Like you talk about another concept in the book called the Misogi. I don't know. Am I pronouncing that right? And it, yeah, Misogi. Okay. Can you tell us about the Misogi? Yeah. So I met this as part of the book. I met this guy whose name's Marcus Elliott. And his background is that he's a Harvard MD, but he decided he didn't want to be a doctor. He wanted to revolutionize sports science. Now, this is in the early 2000s. And, you know, this is a pretty big goal, but, uh, Turns out he actually did it. So his first job uh, he took was with the Patriots and they had a really high hamstring injury rate and he dropped it from like 23 a season down to three. He really started winning after that. Tom Brady helped, Belichick helped too, right? But like the fact that all, most of the players were healthy also really helped. He now runs a facility called P3 where he applies like big data and movement analytics and all these like numbers, datas, and figures to sports training more or less. But he also knows that what really improves human performance and just human well-being, it can't always be measured by numbers, right? So to get to those sort of unmeasurables that we know some people have, like especially some players, it's like, why is it that certain players might be okay most of the season, but come like a clutch situation in the playoffs? They're just like, yeah, hand that person the ball, whatever it is, you know, what is that? So he, to get to that, he does this thing called Masogi. And the idea is that once a year, I'm going to do something really, really freaking hard outside. And there's only two rules. One, it's got to be really hard. And he defines that by saying you should have a 50-50 shot of finishing it. Number two is that you can't die. That one's pretty straightforward, right? So back to our conversation that we just were talking about with the challenges that we used to face in our past lives. It's like we used to have to do these things and each time we would accomplish something really challenging in our outdoor environments, we would learn something about ourselves and our potential. You know, we would think, I don't know if I can do this, but we would kind of keep going past what we thought was our edge. And then we could look back and be like, oh man, 
here I am. What I thought was my edge is back there. What else in my life am I selling myself short on? Right. So Masogi is sort of mimicking that same idea by choosing something that is really hard, maybe beyond your capability. You're going to get to that point where you think you're going to have to quit. Like, I'm going to have to quit. Going to have to stop doing whatever I'm doing. But then you keep going and you have that realization where you realize you were kind of selling yourself short and that you're a lot more capable than you ever thought you were. So the, some of the things that these people will do, they've done things like they hadn't really stand up paddleboarded much and they decide they're going to stand up paddleboard across the Santa Barbara channel. It's like 25 miles. It took them like eight hours, but it was like by focusing on that next perfect stroke, it's like, okay, we're still going, we're still going. And then they, you look back and all of a sudden you've crossed an entire ocean, right? And then they can take that into their normal life and they can be better for it. It sort of reframes the idea of once you've done something like that, you maybe get in front of that presentation that you have to give to your office. It doesn't seem as much of a big deal anymore. You're just kind of like, oh yeah, I was, I've accomplished this totally other thing and learned a lot about myself. I, I realize now that I have this gear on board that I didn't realize was there because the thing about modern life is it's great. It's comfortable but we're never forced into these positions where we learn and can see and experience. I can do way more than I ever thought possible. Has he failed at any of these Masogis? I mean, there, you mentioned a 50, 50 kind of aiming for the 50, 50 target in terms of success or failure. I may or may not be able to accomplish this. And if you do fail at a Masogi, is there still value? Yeah. I mean, as the numbers show, he's, he's pretty good. He's a 50, 50 failure rate. And yes, I think you still can, because I think still, like, let's say, for example, you were like, you know, I've done a marathon before. Uh, actually, let's make, let's make it even easier, because I think what's important about these is that 50% is very personal. You know, if you haven't run or worked out or done anything physical in years, you can still do something like this. Let's say that the longest you've ever run is three miles in your life. You haven't run much in the meantime. So you could ask yourself, I know I've done three miles. Do I think I could do six? And if you're like, well, you know, I think I could probably do six. Okay. Well, what about eight? Eight, you might go, oh man, I don't know if I can do eight. So there's your Masogi, right? Cause that's like a real, it's not like a, no, definitely couldn't do eight. It's like, oh, if you feel that real, like kind of fear and you're like, oh, hey, I don't know. That's your Masogi. So let's say you go out and you try eight. But you get to mile six and a half and you're just like, man, I can't do this. I'm going to have to quit. But most people still keep trying a little bit, right? Like you're going to get past that point where you thought you couldn't go any further. And even if you quit at mile seven, you still have that moment. Not to mention you just did seven miles. The longest you did ever done was three miles. So like clearly what you'd done before was like very, very within your comfort zone and safety limit, right? So you're still going to learn something from that. And, you know, I think sometimes people will think, oh, well, you know, isn't it dangerous or whatever? It's like, remember the rules, rule two, <laughs> don't die. And also, you know, one, we're talking one day a year. We're not talking like regularly do these things that are really, really, you know, physically challenging for us. Because of course it's not sustainable if you're trying to do this every single week. But once a year, it's not really even a physical thing. It's a psychological, emotional, and spiritual test that's sort of masquerading as something physical. 
And for the listener, if you're thinking about this and going, okay, well, you know, Michael did this 30-day trek in the Arctic, and this other guy does these, you know, massive hard things that are crazy. Like, you don't have to, like, create this big, you know, event. Like, you can simply say, okay, you know what? I'm going to take Michael's advice. And on Saturday, I'm going to do the, I'm going to do the eight mile thing. You can do it on a Saturday morning, right? You can, you can start small, start wherever you're at, find that thing. You don't have to plan a 30 day trip to the Arctic, right? You can do this. You can find out, you know, figure out what it is you want to do and, and go do it this weekend or next month or something like that, which leads me to another thing that you, you mentioned in briefly there, like the, the Masogi has to be outside your trip to the Arctic was outside. Is there really a value of doing things outside and being in nature? I mean, is that part of it? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, in the Arctic, outside the entire time, right? There's not a building within 100 miles. And you would think that because I'm up there, it's freezing. We're having, you know, encounters with grizzly bears. There's just all this stuff. You'd think that I would be totally on edge the entire time. But the opposite was true. I was like the calmest, most centered I'd ever been in my entire life. And I wanted to know why. So when I get back to sort of quote unquote normal life, I started looking about looking into the science of being outdoors. Are there benefits? And I met with this uh, neuroscientist who told me about this idea called the nature pyramid, or you can think about it as the 20 five, three rule. And it basically shows that for one, we know time in nature is really good for our mind and bodies, but there are specific doses that have specific benefits. So the average person today spends more than 95% of their time indoors, yet we evolved in nature. And so there's something about nature that still really speaks to us and calms us down. So her work shows that 20 minutes, three times a week is associated with lower stress levels or focus. And that's really easy to do. This is like the nature that you can find in a city park, like walking down a tree lined street, super easy to do. The next five, five hours a month in a little bit more kind of country nature, I guess you would say. This is like something you could find at like a state park, a little more, you know, really easy to access, but kind of off the grid-ish. That's associated with a lot less depression and a lot more happiness. There's some really fascinating research that's been done in Finland about that. And then at the very top of the pyramid um, is three. So there's this idea called the three-day effect. And it basically shows that after three days in backcountry nature, like removed your brain starts to ride what are called alpha waves. Now, in the modern life, we never are riding these things, but they're associated, they're the same waves that you see in experienced meditators. They're associated with a lot more calmness, really high increases in creativity, and just a lot general life satisfaction. Like you just feel like, oh man, life's good. I feel good. Things are great, right? But the catch to all of this research and this rule is that none of it applies if you bring your cell phone out into the wild with you. So if you start to put your attention toward a screen, it sort of cancels this stuff out. There's a lot of reasons for that. But I mean, I think the message is just like, eh. I don't advocate like not bringing your cell phone, especially if you're getting really far out. Like when I do far runs out in the desert, I will still bring my phone, but I just turn it off because, you know, you want to be safe but just turn it off and don't use it because um, it seems to cancel this stuff out. 
so much value. I mean, it, I feel it whenever I'm working and I'm in my house, in my office for so long. Like, I feel like if I just get out and walk around my neighborhood, walk through the trees, like there's a shift that happens internally. And as I mentioned to you before we hit record, I'm in Montana and we're doing a three-day backpacking trip up in the mountains. And we're going to have to bring bear spray, you know, grizzly spray, the whole bit. You know, it's just part of it. But man, am I looking forward to it because I know it is just refreshing for the soul. And it doesn't have to be that. Just again, for the listener, if that feels out of reach for you, like you can go walk down a tree-lined street. And there's scientific facts that research that backs this up. There's value to this. This is like so many people are like, no, I got a, you know, I got an inbox full of emails. I've got meetings. I've got to do this. I've got it. Well, yeah, I, I get it. But like this is for a form of, and for my longtime listeners, you know what I'm about to say. This is a form of the productive pause. It's that short period of focused reflection around specific questions that leads to clarity of action and peace of mind. Well, this is actually not even asking yourselves questions. It's just get out there. Let your mind wander. Let yourself be bored. Just be in the environment that we evolved in. Yeah, totally. And I would add too to the three-day effect one, the researcher that I talked to said, you know, if you are like totally, totally nature averse, you can even do something like a Airbnb that's more off the grid, like a cabin. The point is just don't spend your time up there on your phone. Don't spend your time on your screen. Like during the day, you should be trying to spend your time outside and then you come back to your nice warm cabin or whatever and you'll be fine. Um, but the other thing that I want to point out is that, you know, some people today are like, well, you know, I'm not outdoorsy at all. Well, if you would have been born a thousand years ago you would have been outdoorsy in the sense that you would have lived outdoors, right? So I think we kind of have this like, again, to problem, we don't like see in the grand scheme of time and space, like, oh, like any human can just live outdoors. We did this for millions of years, you know? We sell ourselves short on what we're capable of doing. And oftentimes as with, you know, sort of the message of this book is like, if you want to benefit in life in a variety of ways, you're usually going to have to go through some form of discomfort, whether that's, exercise, improving your fitness. So you're more disease resistant, losing weight, probably gonna have to go through hunger. Well, if you want these brain benefits of nature, yeah, nature is, can be uncomfortable sometimes, but when you come out on the other side of that, you are much better for it. Michael, there's something that I have to ask you about. I know that in the book, you wanted to write more on this topic, but a lot of it got edited out just from the publisher and just for whatever reasons. But I know that there's a topic that you really enjoyed writing about that you didn't get to cover as much. And I know there's, you know, for the listener, you can go to easternmichael.com and you can get access to this, this longer writing on this topic, but it's the harder to kill gene. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I went to Iceland. Now, what's really interesting about Iceland is that they don't really exercise more than any other country. Their diets are pretty, meh. It's like, you know, kind of middle of the pack. They, they actually eat the fewest amount of vegetables of any European country. Their healthcare is like, whatever. I mean, they're just very run of the mill and all this stuff that, you know, is what kind of makes people healthy. But the men in particular are the longest living on earth. They beat every other country. And I wanted to know why that was. So I go there and I meet with this guy whose name is Kerry Stefanson. And he used to run the neurology department at Harvard for a bunch of years, but he's a full-blooded Icelander. And he recently, well, I think it was maybe probably 15 years ago now, moved back to Iceland to study genetics. He's got this massive genetic laboratory that has like 200 scientists. And he's kind of trying to get to the heart of why Icelanders are healthy and also learn a lot about other diseases. So basically 
the theory is, and it needs a lot of work. It's kind of like one of these working theories, but it's, it's fascinating is that, um, Iceland for basically all of time had no one on it. It was just totally unpopulated. Then about a thousand years ago, these Vikings from the North of Norway, they were like sort of disaffected by this King. So they got in these boats and they left. They're like, we're getting out of here. They swung by the UK, they're Vikings. So they kidnap a bunch of women. Okay. And then they sail their boats to Iceland and they land on this rock and they're like, all right, let's live here. Now, as one Icelander put it to me, Iceland is a shit place to live. It's always way too cold. It's super windy. The sun doesn't come up a ton. When they got there, there's literally nothing grows on the island. They brought animals with them. So they would have just animal products like sheep and cows and stuff like that. It was a terrible place to live. Uh, a lot of people died. Couldn't rough it in Iceland. At one point, they had the highest infant mortality rate ever recorded. It was like six, 700 deaths per 1,000 kids born. Just really, really rough and tumble place to live. And what they think happened is that because Icelanders over a thousand whatever years evolved in this really uncomfortable landscape, essentially cold the herd and sort of the weakest people didn't make it. And now they're left with this, these people that are just like, the product of like the most badass people on the island and it's helped them live on and live longer. And I think you see that, I mean, you see it in the longevity data, but you even see it in um, things like, you know, a lot of Icelanders compete in CrossFit and they often take the podium, especially the women, like the women just own the podium. And we're talking about, this is an island that has 300,000 people, right? Millions and millions and millions of Americans do CrossFit. And yet like this, you know, 10, 20,000 people who do CrossFit in Iceland are just kicking everyone's butt. It's super fascinating. And yeah, I have this whole uh, breakdown I'm writing about why, unfortunately, yeah, that section got cut from the book, but it's one of my favorite, partially because the guy who's doing all this research is a character himself. He's like six foot four, he's 70 years old, but he's like six, four, 220 could beat the shit out of me anytime he wanted to. And he's just like, he's profane. He's just an amazing character too. And just unbelievably brilliant, obviously. He's a Viking. Yeah, totally. So for the listener, you can check that out. Go to eastermichael.com. But Michael, I want to ask you a little bit about yourself. I mean, you've been extremely successful. I mean, you've written an amazing book. You've been on a lot of you know, great podcasts. You've been on Rogan and et cetera. And, and, you know, it looks like this comes easy for you. You know, you've written in, in some of the most recognized magazines that every single one of my listener knows about. How has failure played a role in your success? Like, has there been a time or times when you failed and how, you know, how did you move through that? Or how did you benefit from that or, or learn from it? Yeah, I have a, I have one I haven't really talked about that much. It's that, so I talk about in the book, how I'm sober and that has played a big role in um, my trajectory, but instead I'll, I'll talk about something else. So a handful of years ago, this was like after I got sober, I'm at men's health for Bennett men's health for a while. And when you're at a magazine for a while, you start to do things that aren't writing. So I got into it to write and I was having to edit more. They were giving me things like, you know, figure out the future of journalism and how we're going to make money on this. And that is just not what I wanted to do. So I started looking for other jobs and I got in my mind, I wanted to work in a, for basically like for the government and in a high up um, role in security, essentially in law enforcement. And it's a long process. 
to get into a job like that. And I had sort of pushed all my chips across the table. Like that's what I want to do. Cause you have to go through all these different stages of interviews and security clearances and background checks and all this stuff. And it just takes, I mean, it's the government. They don't move at a pace that, you know, is quick. And I mean, like for my, one of the very last things I needed to do. And I'm like, I knew I was going to have to move for this job. Like my then girlfriend, now wife were like planning all this stuff and it fell through. And it was like, shit, shit. Like, what am I going to do? And I was just totally dejected. I was like, oh my, like, I'm going to have to stay in this job. I don't like, like all these things. Right now, the funny thing was, is when I was, thinking about what should I do when I had sort of had this feeling like men's health and the position I'm in isn't working out. I was like, you know, it'd be probably my number one pick would to be a journalism professor because then I could spend half my time teaching and half my time writing. And that just sounds great. But the thing about that is you need a PhD and I don't have a PhD. So what could I do instead? Oh, I'll like look into this other thing. Okay. So I fail at that. And I'm in this job and I'm like, God, what am I going to do? And I don't know. I could not tell you why, but, um, one of the places that my wife and I had wanted to maybe move was to Las Vegas. And we were thinking, well, maybe we could just try and move there. I don't know. And I just pick a person at random in the journalism department at UNLV. I email him. I say, Hey, here's my resume was kind of maybe thinking about moving to Vegas. I don't know if you guys need like an adjunct or like, I'm just, eh, you know, his boss writes me back a day later and goes, Hey, got your resume right now. We are looking for a full-time journalism instructor who has a background in health journalism. We haven't been able to find anyone. We would need you to start in like a month, but can you come interview? And I was like, yeah. So I fly to Vegas to like fly back the same day. And they offered me a job and it was like, holy shit. Like, here's a thing that you thought was completely unattainable in the place you want to be. So you had like chose second best. When that didn't work out, you were like crushed. You thought it was like, okay, well, that was a waste of a decent life, but we'll figure it out from here. And then like, it ended up working out. And I think what that taught me as a whole is that sometimes when we fail at things, we don't realize that it's actually a good thing, right? In the moment, it's like, man, life is over, but you have no idea what the future holds. And we often assume that we think we know what is best for us. We don't, <laughs> you don't. <laughs> That's definitely like a thing that I've had to work on is realizing like whatever I'm assuming at this moment, I'm probably wrong in some way, whether I'm like, kind of wrong or like, oh my God, this is, you are so wrong. I don't know, but it's usually some degree of things. So I think that that was, has just kind of made me realize like when things don't go my way, it's possible that they actually are going my way, but I'm not going to see the returns on that for months, weeks, years, you know? You know, I've heard that type of story so many times over the years of people who have experienced failure. And it's like this catastrophic failure where you think, gosh, this was the life that I envisioned. Now I can't have that. So I guess I have to settle for second best. And you realize down the road that, that there's some other opportunity that came about because of that failure, or you wouldn't have seen because of, you know, had you succeeded at that other thing. And it's just, you know, that yeah. is the path and the trick for the listener. The trick is this, you're sitting there 
and you've experienced some failure in your life, and maybe it was yesterday, maybe it was a decade ago, or maybe it was somewhere in between, you've experienced that failure. And for some reason, you are, you are believing that you are, that opportunity is gone, that you are a person less successful because of it. No, you, you're wiser, smarter, more competent, more capable because of that failure. And that failure does not preclude you from success in some other avenue, some other area, maybe the same area. I mean, that is the process that is the path. You've heard it again from another amazing individual who I got to have come on the podcast. Michael, thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. So I'm going to wrap up with this. One action item. One thing that the listener can do if they're in, they're like, okay, I get it. I like the idea of the Masogi or being in nature or understanding that you know things are really easy. I want to be happy and maybe I need to do some things that are harder or like What's an action item? What's one thing that they can do outside of going out and, and buying the book? And you can buy the book in it for the listener, The Comfort Crisis on Amazon and every other book outlet. But what's one action item that you can recommend, Michael? Yeah, here's something that is, what do they say? Simple, but not easy. Um, so one thing I noticed is when I was in the Arctic, you know, my cell phone didn't work for hundreds of miles. And all of a sudden I found myself bored again. You know, it's like I hadn't been bored and I couldn't even remember because now Whenever we feel this discomfort of boredom, which used to be a thing that, you know, told us to go do something productive, do something better with our time. Now we just have this easy escape where we jump into our phone, you know? So the average American is spending more than 11 hours a day engaged with digital media. This is something that wasn't in our life for two and a half million years. And now it's essentially 11 hours a day. It's become our lives, right? So in the book, I argue, you know, you see a ton of stuff out there that's like, you need to use your phone less. You need to use your phone less. It's like, yeah, we all know, we all get it. But I think the problem is, is that when people do use their phone less, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm bored. What do I do? And they just watch Netflix or they go on their computer. It's like, that is the same thing. Your brain does not know the difference at all. So in the book, I make the case, I think we need to reintroduce ourselves to boredom. So I recommend that you know, every day, once a day, just completely detach from electronic stuff and spend some time just being with your thoughts and seeing where they take you because um, you're going to find that they're going to go in some interesting places. You're going to have some time to think inward. You're going to give your brain a rest and you're probably going to come up with some creative ideas. You know, there's a lot of interesting research that says that boredom is a really great spur for creative ideas and we just don't get it anymore. So, you know, what I do to do this is every day I'll take a walk without my cell phone. I'm like, yeah, sometimes when I'm in my head, it's just complete madness. But other times I come back and I'm like, bam, had an amazing idea for an article I can write for Men's Health or had an amazing idea for how I'm going to figure out how to explain this complicated topic in my book to the average person, et cetera. And I wouldn't get that if I was just like, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to spend it watching cat videos on Instagram. You know, There's a value. There's an investment in that time. And, you know, so many of my listeners, myself included, were always trying to be productive and get stuff done and be hyper efficient. Well, it's like, wait a second, like there's actually value in, in stepping back and just allowing yourself to be bored. And I've been doing that a lot more really this last year or two, just finding time to be bored for short spells. And it is so, so incredibly valuable, not only for creativity, but also just for like being present in the moment going like, oh yeah, like I should go spend some time with my kids or I should go talk to my wife about this thing that we've been wanting to talk about as opposed to like thumbing through Twitter or something like that. So yeah, 
Yeah, Michael, just fascinating, fascinating stuff. For the listener, we are just scratching the surface of this book. Absolutely, 100% recommend it. You've got to buy this book. Michael, can you tell people where they can find you, follow you, buy the book, all that? Yeah, the book is available pretty much wherever um, you find books. Uh, I'm at eastermichael.com as my website. There's some stuff on there. And then in terms of social media, I'm probably most active on Instagram, and that is Michael underscore Easter. Excellent. And for the listener, of course, we'll have all those links to the book and links to the his social media, et cetera, and the action plan. You can go to jimharshawjr.com slash action to get that. Michael, thanks so much for making time to come on the show. Thanks a lot, Jim. That was fun. Likewise. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app. If you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.